Good to see all of you. Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. The reality is that we live in a world of fear. And if you were here last week, I made a pretty bold statement. I, I said that if you come back tonight or you tune in tonight, and you and I can accept the truth of this passage and what's behind it, and we can apply it to our lives every day, that fear will begin to evaporate and that we will become more and more fearless in our life. God knows that even as his followers, we struggle with fears. The most often used exhortation in the Bible, over 365 times, meaning it's more than one a day, is do not fear or do not be afraid. You find that more than anything else in the Bible as far as an exhortation goes. So God even understands we struggle with fear. One of the things about fear is that fear can take on a life of its own. That that which triggered fear in our life may be gone, but we're still allowing other things then to fill us with fear. Things that were not triggered at first by what really caused the fear, but then we become a fearful person because we allow fear into our lives and then other things begin to cause us fear. This was one of my big concerns at the beginning of the pandemic, even for Christians, is that if we allowed fear to control us and to get into our lives because of this, then we would, once this was long gone, <laughs> we would still be suffering with fears of other things. Because fear, once it comes into our life, it can manifest itself through a multiplicity of things. The reason why I'm setting up this chapter this way is because, as I also said last week, Revelation chapter 9 may be the most terrifying chapter in all the Bible. Now, here's the good news for us who know the Lord. We're not going to be here when this happens on earth, right? I believe that the rapture takes place before this happens and that this is dealing with earth dwellers, not that there won't be people who have committed their life to the Lord during the tribulation period. And as we're going to see, God seals them and protects them from this judgment. But all the other earth dwellers will go through this horrific, horrific time. What I want to do tonight, then, is sort of divide this message up into two parts. I want us to first look at the reality of what the people on earth will be dealing with during this time that John is revealing to us here. But then I want to end tonight by making this very practical to us and applicable to us. Bring it down, really, to our front door and saying, but here's the reality of what you and I have to deal with when we come to the unseen, invisible world. 
because that's really what we're going to be talking about here tonight, is the visible, the unseen. And I want to begin by making this statement, and I'll, I'll share it a couple times with you because it's sort of the, the summation of where I hope we go tonight and how we take this passage of Scripture and can use it in our lives. If we would be more aware of the invisible supernatural forces that God continually protects us from and preserves us from, then we would be much less fearful of the visible natural forces that are the source of so much fear, anxiety, and worry. You see, even as Christians, many times we're not walking by faith, we're walking by sight, and we allow the things that we can see to scare us, to put fear into us, to cause us anxiety and stress and worry more than we do the world that we can't see. And what I want to sort of remind us all of tonight in this chapter to me more than any other chapter in the Bible, maybe other than Ephesians chapter 6, teaches us that there is a threat out there that you and I cannot see, but is much more of a threat to us if we understand it properly than the things that we can see. Now, I'm not saying we should be afraid. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But the Bible teaches that as Christians, we should be aware at all times of our invisible, unseen enemy and the entities that are living in that unseen, invisible world all the time that influence and affect our lives and that we need to be vigilant at all times about them. That is why in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul teaches us as Christians that our struggle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against those entities, wicked, evil ones that are in the unseen, invisible world, which is why then Paul goes on to say, as Christians, it is our responsibility to do what? Put on the armor of God. Okay? Not to ever be afraid of them. Why? Because of what we're going to learn tonight and what we learn in other places. If we truly believe that our Jesus is who he is, King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the beginning and the end, the one who created all things visible and invisible, and that he is the Lord not only of the visible world but of the invisible world, and he's in complete control of what you and I cannot see, even though that world is a greater threat to us than the world we can see, if we can trust him to protect us and preserve us from what we can't see, then the argument backwards should be then that we should be able to trust him and to protect us and preserve us from the things that we can see. Think of it even this way. Most of us as human beings are much more afraid of the dark than we are the light. We're, we're more fearful of the things that we can't see, if you will, than what we can see, except when it comes to the spiritual world. Then all of a sudden, we go through our day, and we almost like forget, like, they're not even there. And we start getting more afraid of the things that we 
can see, you see. So tonight, let's begin to look at just some of the things that are happening here. The first thing that we see in chapter 9 is this fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star that had descended or fallen from the sky to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. He's given this key by God because the angel, I believe, comes from heaven. I think that this is the same angel that we're going to be introduced to in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, that is also given the key to the abyss and comes down and literally lays hold of Satan. So that's got to be a pretty powerful angel to lay hold of Satan and throws him in the abyss for a thousand years during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. What is the abyss? It is a spiritual prison, okay? A spiritual prison. Who lives there? Well, keep your finger there for a moment in Revelation 9 and go back with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude, verse 6. And they're not too far away from Revelation. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And Jude, verse 6. Let's begin at 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell, or the abyss, and locked them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment. What judgment? The one we're going to talk about in Revelation chapter 9. There was a group of fallen angels that God has placed in a spiritual prison. And he has use of them, and he has confined them there for a long time, and he will let them out come Revelation 9 when those events unfold, and he gives permission to this angel delegating it's his authority that's doing this. Again, God is in control, and he goes down to this abyss, and he's going to let out basically this demonic army that has been confined there for a long, long time. If you go to the book of Jude, the book right before the book of Revelation, you see this very same thing in the book of Jude, verse 6. You also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain, meaning even when they fell, God gave them boundaries and said, because he's sovereign, he's in control. Here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. And guess what? Some of them didn't listen. So God threw them into a spiritual prison. They were abandoned to their own place of residence, and he is kept in eternal chains and utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. That's what we're going to talk about now in Revelation chapter 9. So who comes out of this abyss? What is this judgment upon the earth? It is literally an army of demons that have been chained up for a long, long time that are unleashed upon the earth. Now, let, let's talk about this for a minute. First of all, let's talk about the concept of a spiritual prison in order, again, to, to capture just a little bit of the greatness of our God and how he is in control of everything, visible and invisible. How do you confine 
spiritual beings. It's not like they're like us, flesh and blood, and you can throw them in a jail and they're there and you can lock them up. They're spiritual beings. And this is a spiritual prison. What kind of power do you think it takes for God to basically combine spiritual beings? Above what I can comprehend. I mean, the only thing I can come close to is, you know, we live in a world now that has invisible fencing. <laughs> you know, like you slap a collar on your dog, you know, and it goes so far, you know. But here's what I want us to see. These demonic creatures, God has totally locked down and kept under his control for millennia. And not a one of them has got out. He, he's got it. And, and he's got them exactly where he needs them to be, wants them to be, until it's in his plan to let them out and be part of the judgment of the great day. So if you go back then to chapter 9, verse 2, the angel opens the shaft of the abyss and smoke grows out of it like smoke from a giant furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then out of the smoke came locusts onto the earth, and they were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. Now, let me point this out. More than any other chapter in the Bible, John uses the words like or as in this chapter more than any other chapter in the Bible. Meaning that even John is doing the best he can to try to explain, express, communicate, articulate, illustrate, paint a portrait, paint a picture of what he is seeing. He's doing the best he can, but in no way is he saying that's exactly, he said, they're like this, and they're as this, and they're like this, and they're as. Even John cannot fully express what he's seeing, okay? Locust plagues are a sign of God's judgment, and in Joel, they are a harbinger of the day of the Lord. Verse 4, they were told not to damage the grass of the earth, or any green plant or tree, which is usually what locusts do, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. So God's people who have come to faith during the tribulation period are protected from the outpouring of divine judgment. The locusts, notice, are not given permission to kill them because if it was up to them, this demonic army, they'd kill them. No questions asked. We'll talk more about that later. They're only permitted to torment them for five months, which also corresponds, interestingly, to the life cycle of locusts. Their torture was like that of a scorpion when it stings a person, agonizing pain. If you've ever been stung by a scorpion, you know that the pain can be pretty agonizing. In those days, it's so bad, verse 6, that the people of the earth will seek death, but they will not be able to find it. Why? Because God's in control of death. 
In other words, think about it. It's so bad that people are, I want to die, and they won't be able to. They'll even try to kill themselves. They won't be able to. God's sovereign. God's got our lives. God's got the keys of hell and death. Now, notice a description of this demonic army. Verse 7, the locusts looked like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were something like crowns similar to gold, and their faces looked like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like iron breastplates, and the sound of their wings was like the noise of many horse-drawn chariots charging into battle. They had tails and stingers like scorpions, and their ability to injure people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon, both meaning the destroyer. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm not going to be around. But here's what I want us to just take a moment and remind ourselves of. This is real, folks. These beings exist, and right now, they're in the abyss. And they're going to be let loose by God one day upon this earth. Now notice verse 12. The first woe has passed, but two woes are still coming after these things. The emphasis here is upon the imminent arrival of the others soon after this. So look at verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a single voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. Remember, horns are a symbol of power, and on the altar they signify the power of God, the Almighty. Saying to the sixth angel, the one holding the trumpet, set free the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. There again, God has these evil angels bound. You say, why do you know they're evil? Because there's no good angels that are ever bound in Scripture. The only angels that are bound, that are restricted in Scripture, are the evil angels, the fallen angels, the ones who fell with Lucifer. And these four angels are tied up, if you will, in this location. We don't know exactly where it is. Somewhere, obviously, in the invisible world, right? What I want us to see here again, though, is that they're held back. And who are they held back by? God, God's power. Otherwise, they'd be already here, destroying and killing, you see. But God holds them back for this particular time until it is within his plan to release them upon the earth. And here comes a second army of demons, verse 15. The four angels who had been prepared for this hour, day, month, and year. Wow, think about that. God is not only in control of the forces, he's in control of the specific timing of these events. He literally, in his plan, said, okay, you all, you're going to be, I'm going to use you at this day, at this time. At the, he has it all figured out. But notice, set free from being bound to kill a third of humanity. 
a third of the earth's population gone by this demonic army. Now, notice verse 16. This is maybe one of the most imposing pictures anyone could imagine. The number of soldiers on horseback was 200 million. That's a lot of demons. At the height of World War II, at the height of World War II, the combined forces of the Allied and Axis powers was 70 million. 200 million demons are going to be released upon the earth. And this is the second wave. The first wave we've already seen in the first 10 verses. This is now a second wave. And are you beginning now to understand, oh my goodness, I knew there was a lot of angels, fallen and unfallen. I'm beginning to start to wrap my head around exactly how many millions upon millions upon millions of angels there are, including demons, you see. Now, this is what the horses, verse 17, and their riders looked like in my vision. The riders had breastplates that were fiery red, dark blue, and sulfurous yellow in color. The heads of the horses looked like lion's heads, and fire, smoke, and sulfur came out of their mouths. A third of humanity was killed by these plagues, three plagues. That is, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came out of their mouths. For the power of the horses resides in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails are like snakes, having heads that inflict injuries." Unbelievable. But notice this. Would those who weren't killed, the other two-thirds of humanity, realize their folly and repent and turn to the Lord? Bible says, no, not for the most part. The rest of humanity who had not been killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so they did not stop. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. They did not stop worshiping demons. Who slaughtered them? Demons. Think, th think about this. Th th this is why sin and darkness and evil and wickedness is absolutely so absurd and why God one day is going to rid the universe of it once and for all. Because these very people literally are worshiping the creatures that are slaughtering them instead of turning to the God who loves them. And even after they treat them this way, they continue to worship these demons and the idols and all of that that are demonically influenced. This also reminds us of why worship is so important because we worship, I should say it this way, our worship determines what we live for. And so you'll notice then in the next verse, verse 21, that's what they were living for. They were living for those things. Why? Because what we live for is determined by our worship, which is why it's so important that we worship God, because that's then who we live for. Pretty crazy chapter, right? It could, could even be a little unnerving, especially if you weren't sure you were saved and that you might actually experience this one day. 
But here's what I want us to come to grips with as far as the reality of what you and I deal with. We may not deal with this reality that John talks about in John chapter, in Revelation chapter 9. But we do deal with an unseen enemy. And we need to be aware of that enemy. And we need to be alert to that enemy. Never fearing that enemy because of this. God is always there to protect us and preserve us from what you and I can't see. Let me remind us of this verse. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So God says, look, I haven't confined all the demons. I've confined lots of them, but there are other demons, as we know even in the Gospels that Jesus and his followers encountered, that are allowed to roam around the earth. And they can even influence and impact our lives as Christians if we're not putting on the armor of God and vigilant and aware of it. Again, not afraid, but understanding that we need to do our part to protect ourselves from this invisible, unseen enemy that is a greater threat to us than anything you and I could ever lay our eyes on on earth. Let me tell you why I say that. If you go back up to verse 11, it says the king over this abyss was basically called the destroyer. Let me share with you a couple other verses that remind us of the intent of our spiritual enemy. And I'm not just talking about the devil himself, but any demon out there. Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 10, contrasting himself, the good shepherd, to false shepherds, he says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and what? Destroy. Do you know what the devil and his minions want to do with all the lives of human beings? They want to destroy them. Any fallen angel hates any human being, saved or not, because we are created in the image of God. And they hate God. Therefore, they hate those of us who are created in his image. And then, then bring it up to another whole level when you and I accept Christ as our Savior, and now we are a new creation in God. Oh, that you and I can't even begin to understand the hatred that the devil and his demons have towards us as God's people. Jesus reminded his own followers of this in the Gospels. He turned to Simon and he said these words, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have all of you and sift you like wheat. 
Now, first of all, think about what Jesus is saying. Satan has the audacity to demand something from Jesus Christ? Yeah, he does. Because again, sin is absurd. Wickedness is absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Many people ask me, why, why does Satan continue to fight God when he knows how strong God is and that his fight is futile, like he's going to win? Because sin is absurd. Dark, darkness clouds our minds. It never makes sense. Him demanding anything of the Lord Jesus is totally ridiculous. And yet he does it, right? But here's what I want us to see. Jesus protected and preserved Simon and the other disciples. He didn't tell Simon, oh, Simon, Satan wants to sift you all like wheat. He's demanded to have you all and there's not a thing I can do about it. No. Jesus was going to watch over Simon and the other disciples until it was their time to go to be with Jesus. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says to Christians, be alert your enemy, the devil, walks around on a prowl like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may, what? Devour. Devour. Now, I'm going to get in your all's faces for a minute, but as I do that, trust me, I'm getting in my face too. I want us to come to a very hard reality tonight that you and I need to face, and here's why. Because you and I can't overcome our fears until we face our fears, right? You can try to deny the fear. You can try to run from it. You can try to remedy it. You can try to cope around it and all those things. But until you and I face our fears... We can never truly gain victory over them and be released from them. So, so let's be reminded tonight of what the reality is based upon the word of God. If Satan had his way, if, if a demon had their way at any second of your life or my life, we would be dead. Do you understand that? They hate you and me so bad that they're just, they just, if they had any opportunity to kill us at any point in our life, they do it. No questions asked. They have no regard for human life. We see that in this chapter. That's who demons are. Even the people that worship them, they care less about the worshipers. They're going to slaughter them because that's who they are, right? So you and I need to come to grips with that. Every day, you and I live in this world having to understand that those that we cannot see, if they had one chance to get at us, they would strike us dead immediately. And yet, and yet, 
Very, very, very few times do we walk through life, even as Christians, thinking about that. And I'm not saying we should dwell on it, but here's why that should be a strength to our faith. If that is true, then that means why I don't, like, live my life in total anxiety and fear about that all the time is because I'm resting in the protection and preservation of my Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, I'll watch over you. I'll protect you. Yeah, I know Satan and and the demons want to get at you. I know that they'd kill you if they could, but I'm not going to let them because I am the Lord of glory, and I'm the one that's in control of this whole thing here, and I'm in control of your life, and Satan's not going to lay a fingernail on you unless I allow him to. And when you and I begin to realize the protection and preservation God gives us every second of our life from the things that we cannot see, who are a greater threat to us than anything you and I can see on this earth, I think you and I will begin to be less and less fearful of the things that we can see because we're realizing God's protecting me at all times from a greater threat than what I can see. Because there's an invisible entities out there in the unseen world that if they had their way, we'd be gone. We'd be done. This fall, we're going to do a seven-week series through the book of Job on Sunday mornings. I'm being impacted by it already as I study for it. It's actually going to be a worship series. But the thing that you and I are confronted with right at the beginning of that book is Satan has to do what before he can ever even do anything to Job? He has to go to God and basically get permission. Why? Because God's in control because God is sovereign. And Satan can't touch Job. He can't do anything to Job until God gives him the permission to do so. You see, you and I, whether we're aware of it at all times or not, or accept it, we live with the threat of an invisible army of millions of demons out there. Now, I I don't want us to live as if there's a demon behind every chair and every bush and everything like that. That's not how God wants us to live, right? What I want us to do is to use what could become a fear in our life and actually use it sort of as a flagship for our faith to remind ourselves God protects me every second of my life from those things that want to get at me, and they can't get at me unless God allows them to, and I rest in that. And if I can rest in that, then I can rest in a God who can protect me from the things that I can see, from the natural forces of this world that aren't near as much of a threat to me as the invisible world is. And let me tell you, as I close tonight, why this message is so important and why 
I have, I guess, such a heavy heart about this topic. I don't know how many of you follow George Barna and the, uh, the, the things that the Barna Research Group does, but basically what they are is they are a, a, a Christian group that basically goes out to the church in general, right? People who confess to be Christians. And they ask them questions, like poll-type questions, to get sort of the, the temperature, if you will, of where are church people at with stuff, right? What, what's the church really believe, okay? And, and one of the latest things that they did, honestly, caused alarm in me. Only one out of three professing Christians today believes in the reality of the unseen world, believes in the reality of the devil and demonic forces having any kind of impact or influence on their life. One out of three. That tells me that the majority of the church is asleep when it comes to the reality of what the Bible clearly teaches. Again, not something that should cause fear in our life, just the opposite. The reality of what you and I live with, day in, day out, should actually make us fearless. Because God has given us everything we need, his armor, to stand against the devil himself who has no power over us as the children of God unless we give it to him. And nor he nor any of his forces can do anything to any of our lives unless God in his wisdom, like he did with Job, understands it would actually be for Job and maybe many, many others spiritual benefit if I allow it. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of Satan, too. He's the Lord of all the demons, too. And, and they are used by him to bring him glory. I know even for Christians, sometimes that's hard for us to wrap our mind around. But that's exactly what they do. It's like the ultimate frustration that the more Satan and the more the demons try to tear down God and the work of God, the more God's work goes on. The more lives are touched. The, the more eternity is impacted. It always backfires. It's just like with Job. Job is a great example of that. Satan wanted to try to prove that Job was not who God said he was, and he came out stronger and better, having gone through all that pain and suffering and trial and tribulation than he would have had at the beginning. And here's the best thing about it. He knew more about his God than he did before. And that's what the heart of God is. He wants his people to know more of him, even if it means he allows us to go through pain and suffering to do it. 
because ultimately that's the greatest thing you and I could ever carry with us in this life is our knowledge of God, a greater knowledge of him. Paul said, my number one pursuit in this life is that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So I know tonight has been heavy in a lot of ways, but I hope tonight might have begun to build some fearlessness in us as well and to make us even more aware that we don't need to be afraid of anything. If we don't need to be afraid of our unseen enemy that is a far greater threat to us than anything we can see, then we don't need to be afraid of anything we can see either. The invisible forces are much more of a threat than the visible ones. And God is the Lord of them all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you have given us, Lord, some important reminders, even as your children, that, God, you are in complete control over the visible and invisible, over the good and over the evil. It all will bring you glory one day. In fact, one day, Lord, we are promised in your word that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you, Jesus, are the Lord of glory on earth and even under the earth. God, we pray tonight that you would help us to get free of our fear, our worry and anxiety, Lord, the enemy wants to use fear in our life to intimidate us and to, to keep us from, from discovering or being all that you created us to be. And many times, God, we don't step out in our life and, and we don't serve you like we could or live for you like we could because we're afraid of so many things. God, I pray tonight that our fears would begin to evaporate and that we would realize more than ever, God, that you are sovereign, you are in control, you have us, and there is nothing that can get to us unless it comes through you first, God. Lord, you protect us and preserve us from things that we don't see each and every day. That even like Simon, God, there may be those here that Satan wants to sift like wheat, and yet, God, unless you give him permission, he can't even touch us. So, Lord, may we leave this place tonight and may we drive home and lay our heads on our beds or be at home if we're watching through live stream and lay our heads on our bed later on tonight and just rest in you, God. Knowing that there's nothing that we need to fear because you're in control. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.